Hello and welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of any two given <laughs> characters at any given time. Is this the horniest book we've ever done? Oh, I is there a remotely close <laughs> like substitute? I mean, every every character I think is <laughs> depicted hornily to some extent. Yeah, I was thinking about this and was like, well, it's funny that we talked about uh, A Simple Favor on the last episode, because I then read this and I was like, I mean, this basically just is A Simple Favor, right? It's like a a, comedically tinged erotic thriller. Right. I mean, I'll say it right at the top. I don't. (laughs) feel like i have a good handle on what this is let me read to you from the backs of the trades how this is classified like on the book because you know how like books often will have their genre on the back so for volume one it's classified as contemporary fantasy slash romance slash fashion slash comedy slash anxiety slash infp shout out (laughs) to all you infps out there For volume Uh two, it is listed as contemporary romance slash mystery slash fashion slash comedy slash allergies slash hot people, PPL. (laughs) That these can't be real. (laughs) And on the third volume, it is listed as contemporary romance slash mystery slash high stakes drama slash farce slash buffoonery. So (laughs) I can't, uh, you know, I can't deny it. I suppose not. We're, of course, talking about, and this is, it's worth mentioning also, the final episode <laughs> of our Brian Lee O'Malley series. We're, of course, talking about the series Snot Girl. Uh, it is, of course, written by Brian Lee O'Malley with art by Leslie Hung. Uh, and there are, I think, a couple different colorists, right? Yes. The uh, first colorist is uh, Mickey Quinn, who leaves partway through, or I guess after the first arc, and is replaced by Rachel Cohen, who was flatting prior to that. Right. And then, is it Leslie Hung's sister? Is that my conflating this with something else? That someone, like, never mind. Let's cut that out. <laughs> I do not have any knowledge of Leslie Hung having a sister or any, <laughs> I, any such I feel sister like I, being involved. Not, not a sister, but... Are you thinking mind. about I, Lottie Person's sister? <laughs> I... <laughs> ah, this comic is so crazy. I don't understand it at all. I don't understand why he made it. I don't understand... <laughs> like, I mean, I'm like, I'm not even saying that, like, it's garbage. Although... It might be garbage. I haven't really decided yet. (laughs) I don't understand this book at all. It is extremely bizarre and surreal. And I think some of that is on purpose because, as I said, I do believe that the primary genre I would put this under is erotic thriller. Sure. So I think that some of that confusion is by design. I think you are, you know, meant to feel uneasy... (laughs) (laughs) like at most times during the story and be questioning whether things are even really happening which is like it is it is kind of like a weird not inversion exactly of you know the whole scott pilgrim thing but to have like in scott pilgrim half of the humor is like these crazy things are happening completely unremarked upon and then in this all these crazy things happen except it's like but did they even actually happen and like 
the refusal of most people to comment on them is like part of the tension and like anxiety dream feel of the whole book. And like, is any given character real and are they alive? (laughs) (laughs) It's like something I thought constantly throughout because like, yes, not to get into the plot too quickly, but like we're meant to think pretty early on, at least in my mind, that's like, we're meant to think it's like, Oh, she, Carolyn is dead. Mm -hmm. And, Lottie is imagining her like that's that's like the reveal it's kind of setting up but then it's like there's not even like an anticlimax it just kind of goes on as like well I guess she's alive (laughs) yes we are we are meant to like kind of I guess the the um it's the first issue right that she collapses and uh, and is thought to be dead yeah and yeah it's 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 like interesting or or like kind of difficult i think to kind of wrap your head around because lottie is really the only perspective character we get most of the time and because she's like the only one who even saw it happen and is like too scared of carolyn to even like ask her about what happened really she just is like i guess i must have imagined it and so we also are like did you imagine it or like we're not left with a lot of answers my assumption is that her allergy meds are causing her to hallucinate in some way, which is exacerbating the effects of this whole separate uh, like thing that is going on with Carolyn and Virgil and their their eldest brother. Right, because I, they I mean, are I... vampires. <laughs> <laughs> um, they are. Yeah, I would I think, you know, I think there's certainly at least an implication that they are if not vampires and like some some form of supernatural creature mm-hmm. that feeds off of life essence. There's there's like a supernatural element that runs under the book, but it's hard to say 100% that the things that are happening are supernatural because when we see the most like uh, I guess in your face supernatural happenings, i.e. Ghost Girl in Volume 2, like she first appears right after Lottie realizes that she hasn't taken her meds when she was supposed to. She's like, there goes my alarm. I don't have my meds. I'm supposed to take them right now. And then like page turn ghost is now here. So it's like, are we supposed to think that this ghost is actually there or are we supposed to understand this as a side effect of her experimental allergy medicine? And because the ghost like conveniently can't tell her very much that she doesn't already know. But then other than that, the only like real indications of anything supernatural happening are that Sunny, uh, Sunny Day Kim, shout out to Sunny Kim, a guy I know, sees a magazine with Carolyn on the front cover and he's like, well, that can't be her. She's too young. <laughs> Or, like, too old, I guess. One or the I, other. She looks too much exactly the same on this cover from, like, 1999 as she does right now. Right. I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so I'm just, I'm really trying to, like... And also, I think that a big part of it is, like, to some degree, it is sort of using the same style of humor where it's, like the craziness of the world is like deemed normal by the characters and i think that part of that becomes like we don't know what is like a crazy thing that the characters think is normal and what is like a crazy thing that we are meant to see as crazy right well like the characters live a crazy life well let's let's do our one minute uh, plot summary here <laughs> yeah why don't you go ahead and tell us what the plot of this book is? <laughs> okay can do start the clock um 
Good afternoon. Lottie Person, Lottie Actual Person, uh, is a fashion blogger living in Los Angeles. She presents a very uh, picture-perfect life on her social media, but is in fact um, very lonely and confused and extremely self-conscious about her severe allergies, which, because she lives in Los Angeles, are constantly being aggravated. She begins a new experimental medication, as I alluded to, to treat those allergies, uh, and shortly thereafter meets a new friend, uh, Carolyn, aka Cool Girl, uh, who she is quite taken with. They go out to a whiskey bar together and have a great time until Carolyn seemingly collapses and dies, launching Lottie into a... Um, spiraling uh, and like destructive relationship with Carolyn when she then reappears seemingly completely healthy. Um, she tries to integrate Carolyn into her group of friends who are also all fashion bloggers, uh, but her capriciousness and manipulative behavior uh, leaves her very hot and cold. In the course of this, uh, Carolyn also seems to murder or... Uh, <sighs> attempt to murder or generally assault several people, all of whom end up either being okay or seemingly die in unrelated circumstances. And we also meet her brother, Virgil, who is her like butler slash cleaner, um, in the crime boss sense, who uh, is stalking Lottie and several of her friends for unknown purposes beyond he seems to be tasked along with his elder brother with uh, protecting Carolyn and quote unquote cleaning up after her. Why that is, we don't exactly know, but we see him in several situations such as uh, this influencer <laughs> con and one of uh, Lottie's friends weddings performing uh, all of this. Meanwhile, uh, Lottie's ex-boyfriend Sunny Day is investigating Virgil, who he says seen around a lot and is suspicious of, and fashion police detective John Cho, no relation, is also kind of investigating things because he's obsessed with Lottie, basically. And also Charlene exists. Yeah, also <laughs> Charlene exists. Charlene, Charlene is a former assistant of Lottie uh, who then dated Sunny and was pushed off of a roof by uh, Caroline <laughs> or, or maybe Lottie. I find that sequence a little confusing and like it is intended to suggest that maybe Lottie did it. But yeah, who who Lottie thinks is stealing her life until uh, Charlene reveals that she is actually gay and in love with Lottie, which is why she's so obsessed with her. And then she kind of just disappears from the book. <laughs> yeah, that's what's crazy is like she is like the log line, not the not the absolute number one log line, but like she is like the third most important character in the book for like <laughs> the first ten issues or so, and then just gets like completely dropped. Not completely, but, you know, like, she certainly fades into the background more than a little bit. Yeah, I mean, what can you even begin to say <laughs> about this book? Like, I think generously you can... So it's like, it certainly has some satirical elements mm -hmm. of, like, online culture and, like, social media and the way that, like, people present personas versus how they actually are. Yeah, I, I would say um, that thematically speaking, it is the weakest book of his that we have looked at, and we've looked at all his books. So it's his thematically weakest <laughs> book in insofar as like the realization of the themes. Like I think you can kind of look at it and identify what 
sort of interests both him and Leslie Hung, who I gather is like pretty involved in the plotting process and kind of bringing the characters to life and all of that. I think you can tell what themes and ideas are interesting to them, especially as it relates to like kind of life online and uh, being an influencer. But then I think when you actually get into the meat of the book, they are not really as interested in those things as it might kind of appear at first blush or when you're kind of synopsizing uh, the the book using like the log line or kind of the elevator pitch for it. D- does this book have an elevator pitch? Well, I think the elevator pitch the the problem is it that the elevator pitch is really just a summary of the first issue and there are now 15 issues <laughs> which proceed from there and which are like extremely difficult to summarize by comparison as we as we touched upon but anyways uh, despite that I really do enjoy it. I think that as like just kind of a piece of entertainment, I would put it like kind of it's it's hard. I mean, we'll talk about our rankings at the end of the episode, but like I have as much fun reading Snot Girl as I have reading Scott Pilgrim, I would say. Like I find it very entertaining. I think that the uh like kind of the central mystery is intriguing and uh and, you know, draws me in. We'll see if, you know, as time goes on, the conclusion pays off on the interest that I have in it. But so far, I am enjoying it. Uh, the humor works for me pretty well. I think I just like, you know, we're, we're talking about a guy whom this is the first ongoing series that he's ever worked on as a writer. And so everything we've covered from him has been graphic novels that he has talked about kind of like fine tuning the whole way through and what hits the shelf ultimately is like a pretty, you know, polished product. By comparison, this is an originally ostensibly monthly book and then bi-weekly and has since, you know, as we discussed last episode, had some further hiatuses. But it's a real kind of like jam band piece where for the first time, he doesn't have like a constrained amount of space to tell the overarching story. And yet at the same time, he has deadlines that he in theory has to hit (laughs) and is constrained in terms of like the number of pages in a given issue. And he's working with an artistic collaborator in a way that he hasn't really done so before. And so I feel like the whole tone of it, which is simultaneously like much more chill while also being kind of like more, I don't know, like less, less polished, less focused. I can see why that would be off putting for some people, but, um, you know, I think the parts of his work that I've always liked best are the sort of most directionless parts. And so as kind of just like a hangout book most of the time, it is fun for me, even though the characters are all like despicable and completely I was going to say, it's like it's a hangout book where like you don't, you, you would never want to hang out any, <laughs> yeah. with any of the characters. I know, certainly I know what you mean about like the casual feeling of it. Like the, the biggest thing for me, and like I don't even mean this as an insult necessarily is that like it feels like a webcomic to me mm-hmm. and both in terms of like the art style and the overall approach to things i, I don't how would you describe this art style because it does feel a bit like sort of webtoons influenced right i mean i haven't read as much of that stuff as yeah. i might have but it's I would say way more so than O'Malley's own stuff. I would say it's manga influenced in terms of just sort of the overall aesthetic. I think that... But it also, it's like, it's like the comics 
it's like a manga influenced comic influenced is yeah what, what i feel like it is to some extent <laughs> that's that's kind of though just like i mean we'll see this um in the near future with another creator that we're going to be looking at a couple of miniseries down the line but that's just kind of like how comics look now sure like like i think that we have reached a point where the you know, as much as like in the 60s, the art of comics was kind of the like, you know, uh, reclaimable trash or like the elevatable populist kind of thing that everyone was like, you know, when when Roy Lichtenstein makes like, you know, the girl biting her fist and shedding a single tear, everyone is like, oh, we know like that style. We know what this is like playing with and elevating. And now I feel like for some time the art that has kind of been that for up and coming artists um, and that has kind of incorporated itself more so into design and illustration and animation, all of which are, you know, for art school graduates, potential avenues of uh, employment. And, and Leslie Hung is like a trained, you know, formal artist. But I think that manga and anime are like much so more so in that kind of mold and are in some ways like more commercial than, like going back to someone like like I can't even really think of an artist uh, a comics artist who would be influential enough to like be taught in an art school that didn't have their peak in like the 80s you know like like yeah Jim Lee is not getting like taught at like the Rhode Island School of Design for more than like a unit you know what I mean whereas like I do think that the sensibilities of anime and manga have much more so kind of asserted themselves in that world yeah, and I, I wouldn't want to make any assumptions about, you know, Leslie Hung's interest, but I do also feel like for a woman, it's the world of manga and anime has a lot more stuff that is not, like, explicitly geared towards, like, men and young men. And so I think it is a lot easier to, like, find, especially because, like, the genre-wise manga feels so much broader that I think it's easier to find something that fits into your interest in that world and then i mean like this is like there are like shots of this that do feel like very directly manga like i'm looking at the shot right now it's like the beginning of issue six where she's you know cleaning a stain in her bedroom as just like the pose and the background how it sort of like has the cityscape like in relief sort of feels very very manga-esque mm-hmm. yeah aesthetically like Leslie Hung has not done a lot of other like published mainstream comic stuff. This is kind of her her debut uh, in in that world. Um, but one of the few other things that I was able to turn up that she had worked on was an anthology book that was like a shoujo like tribute thing where it was like yeah like like 26 artists across 120 pages where i was like yeah i can't like she is just sort of like the evolutionary style of like saint Seiya is <laughs> like the kind of aesthetic that i i sort of think yeah, of where i'm like definitely. you can obviously like you can see the through line from that to leslie hug like it just in some of the sensibilities and and some of the aesthetics and also like with you know this is not a slam at all or like any kind of judgment <laughs> or anything but like it's also like i like drawing like cool outfits and i like drawing oh, really pretty boys the, i i think that so i read i have read several interviews in which both she and brian Lee O'Malley are basically like like leslie got this job because i like how she draws women <laughs> um and 
and like we're both obsessed with fashion so like having her you know be be like spend so much time on drawing the pretty clothes it is like i think that that is in some ways what they're most interested in doing is like what if we had 22 pages of like extremely hot people wearing extremely cool clothes and like occasionally there was people dying <laughs> yeah and maybe that's part of what lends it like it almost feels like to like I can almost feel them like through the comic being like, can you believe that like we've like duped someone into allowing us to make this? That's <laughs> like again, it's like it's not even because it's bad necessarily. Although it is, it is like it's unfocused for sure. Um, yeah, and I think that's that, a good way to put it. I think that if there is like a failure in it it's that the like the that the dichotomy that we're talking about right now between like these beautiful people and their like ugly lives and the the ugliness of like the violence that is kind of running throughout the book that is kind of supposed to be the lever by which the themes are you know kind of have have their their biggest strengths and and you can most feel them through the problem is that in execution there just isn't really any ugliness in this book, even when it's supposed to be like, she's so gross. It's like, oh, well, I mean, like, it's an extremely hot woman who has like one line of snot coming out of her nose. Like, it's not that gross. And like, right, even sure. even when it's supposed to be like completely disgusting, it, it still has that that like kind of shiny or sparkly aesthetic to it that it makes it hard to kind of like feel the ugliness of it, I guess, it in a way. And so it's hard to feel the dichotomy and instead you end up in this kind of surreal zone where you're like, what's even going on? Because the tones are not consistent, but they're not inconsistent in the kind of way that I think draws your attention towards the inconsistencies in a way that is kind of narratively or thematically the most effective. Yeah. I think that's definitely, I mean like the obvious, I feel like the semi obvious comparison is like, david lynch in terms of like the jumbled tones and there's like a mystery element and like an erotic element as well yeah i i feel like for me i mean the the primary thing maybe is the two things like the two two pieces of media that i often or two types of media that i often harp against are like a satire of the digital age (laughs) and it's a book where like there's a big mystery because, uh, like, have you seen uh, the trailer for Don't Worry, Darling, the new uh, Olivia Wilde movie? I have it not. has, like, Florence Pugh and Harry Styles in it. Well, like, the conceit is, like, they live in, like, a 50s-style community, and there's, like, a dark secret so pending. It's over. Kind of, yeah. But it's just, like, the the type of media where it's, like, the thing about it is there's something going on, and that at some point we're going to find out what's going on <laughs> is, like one of the least interesting forms of media to me. And, like, maybe uh, that that's definitely just a, a me thing. But, like, the idea that it's like, oh, we're going to find out what Carolyn is. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that is, just does not interest me at all. Where it's like, oh, like, so either it's going to be the thing that I think it is, which is basically, like, where the book is leading me to believe that it is, or it's going to be something that's not, <laughs> like has not been shown to me by the book in which case what is the point of all this yeah that's uh that's fair i do think like 
I don't know. I, I do. I, it doesn't bother me as much, certainly in this. Um, I mean, we did talk about this as well, like with the, the whole Gideon reveal where it's like when something is seated as a mystery kind of the whole way through, but also is like clearly not the thing that the book is most interested in. Then when you do get to the reveal, it's kind of like, okay, but also who cares? Like that wasn't why I was reading the book. And this definitely like, there is it, there is an element of that in this for me. Um, and I, I think it is more explicit about not being interested in that to some extent. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't forefront it in the same way that I think Scott Pilgrim does at times, but then it's like, that just becomes even more confusing because it's like, there's this really crazy mystery, but also like, we're more interested in people playing squash. Right. And like, that's fine. I'm happy with that, but it's also just like, (laughs) (laughs) so why is there a mystery? Yeah, it is. It is like kind of in contrast with something like, for example, again, not to spoil future future miniseries, but uh, like Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips did a book called Killer Be Killed, which also has like kind of a mystery at the center of it insofar as there's there's sort of a persistent question of how much of this is real and how much of it is the protagonist imagining and just in terms of like kind of one of the driving elements of the story and i think they do a really good job of like kind of walking the line of like you can make a pretty good argument either way but it benefits in in as much as like the story is not ultimately about figuring out is it this or is it that the story is mostly about what it is driving him to do and the consequences of those things. Whereas I think that snot girl is stuck more so in the, the mode of like, is it this or is it that? And the ultimate conclusion of the story is we're going to find out whether it was this or that. (laughs) And and it's less interested in kind of what, what that question is doing to Lottie a lot of the time. And I think that when it's at its best is often when it does kind of engage with that and show her sort of wrestling with like, you know, how, how hot and cold and like capricious and manipulative Caroline can be and, and showing the ways in which she's able to both like kind of bring out the best in Lottie and also like torment her and, you know, drive her crazy in in other ways that's when I feel like it really works and is clicking and is something that I'm having a really good time reading. And like, again, there are, there are elements of it that do interest me about that more sort of like fantastical side, as far as like older brother, as I've (laughs) only seen him referred to and Virgil. And like, I do have like a certain amount of interest in the mystery of that, but I do too. Like, I don't, I, I just don't think, yeah, I, I do agree that it's not the thing about the book that interests me the most in the same way that, like, what is Gideon's whole deal was not the most interesting thing to me about Scott Pilgrim. And so I think that in the same way as Scott Pilgrim, when we do get the answer, I have a hard time imagining that I won't be like, oh, okay. But, like, also what's happening with, like, you know, are Caroline or are, uh, are Lottie and, like, Sonny ever going to be happy together? <laughs> And also, I think that, like, part of it is because it can be so sort of, like, deliberately dreamlike and strange and, like, difficult to understand what exactly is going on is then, like, it makes me feel like information is, like, being withheld from me to some extent. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just a matter of, like, walking line because, like, I'm thinking about, like, a David Lynch movie. Like, I'm thinking about, like, Blue Velvet 
And then you bringing up Ed Brubaker made me think of Tool to Die Young, which is also, like, exists in an insane universe (laughs) that, like, bears, like, superficial similarities to our own, but it's also, like, completely insane. Mm -hmm. And then also has sort of, like, ostensibly an overarching mystery, but it never, I think, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the way that it chooses to forefront the mystery or the way it chooses not to forefront the mystery, rather, that makes it, like, because, like, in Tool to Die Young, like, I never really cared about finding out what the deal was with, like, this specific character or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the same with Blue Velvet. It's like, I don't, it's not like I'm like, what's Dennis Hopper's story? Like, how did he become <laughs> this crazy criminal guy? It's like, oh, there's a cr- crazy criminal guy in this universe. And, like, we're going to just have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like it it wants to explain itself. Maybe that's, it just wants to explain itself too much and would maybe be more successful if it was a little more just like allowed itself to be sort of more dreamlike and hazy and not really clarify itself. Right. Because even just bringing up like tool to die young, I then also think of drive where I'm like, that is also something where it's like, I I feel like we people tend to think of it as like what a like grounded and kind of like gritty crime story and yet at the same time it's also like this is insane and all the people who are in it are like completely insane and like there's not one single like normal person in that movie including carrie mulligan (laughs) and like (laughs) no one talks like a real person yeah it's like completely like demented and there's so many characters who come into it and are just like Hey, I'm Ron Perlman. I'm aggressively racist and I want to kill people for some reason. And, and and it's like the exact same thing where it's not like, yeah, we don't really care like why Ron Perlman is like a monster. <laughs> right. Like a Boris Karloff character, basically, in <laughs> that portrayal. It's just like he is. And like and that represents a danger to the driver who, again, a completely demented character. <laughs> but like, let's see what he does like in response to that. Whereas, yeah, like like we've been saying, basically, this is like Caroline is, a, you know, a crazy demented monster in some way. But like, what kind of crazy demented monster? <laughs> like, what's and her maybe, monster deal? And again, like this, maybe that is just me sort of like chafing against what the book is. and But then I also feel like the big thing is like, it's crazy that Brian Lee O'Malley wrote this comic because it's like, <laughs> there are elements that are extremely Brian Lee O'Malley and like, you know, very much feel like his style and his style of humor especially. But then it's like stuff that feels so far afield. I mean, it seems obvious that this is the least autobiographical of his work, certainly. Mm-hmm. But then like, I think, you know, if I were to speculate about the origin of this, it feels like a send up of like, the LA types that he encounters and like him being sort of a minor celebrity and having that sort of like mini fame and internet fame. Right. Like the cults, the cult recognition basically. Yeah. I do think that like part of the reason it feels so unfocused is because it's interested in so many different tropes and sending them up. But while that sometimes creates like the surreality that I think can really work at times at other times again it causes you to just be like so like wait what is this is this a joke about like 60s romance comics is this a joke about like la you know culture is this a joke about social media is this a joke at all <laughs> like it, it's it's just it's interested in so many different things but not in a way where it's like the curiosity of this book is overflowing and abounding it's like this book can't decide 
what thing it wants to kind of like lampoon at any given time. And I, I read a review that I'm not totally sure I agree with, but I have read a few different people actually say that they find this book like very mean spirited, which I'm like, I don't know if that is exactly what well. it is about it, but it's certainly not like it's definitely like acerbic, shall we say? I mean, it is pretty fundamentally like a book about hating your friends well i mean the like it opens on haters brunch like i think that and and again maybe part of the too many interests like i do think that the negativity of (laughs) like you know just just sort of like the the constant comparison and and um competition of like life online as an influencer is like kind of part of the the baked in uh like premise and also like lottie's self-obsession like she never really like breaks out of that i don't think like we don't and i almost admire that in some ways that it's like we (laughs) don't really to like be redeemed really at all (laughs) yeah she doesn't ever really do like sympathetic things like she is like unkind she is extremely self-absorbed I mean, and none of the characters really like. Would you say you like? I guess like Esther. Sunny, is the Sunny's, one. Uh, Sunny's like fun. a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is like, yeah, he's he's kind of the only one, though. I mean, uh, Meg is like fine. Like, I think the only thing that's really objectionable about objectionable about her is like she's that all the other characters object to her constantly. <laughs> Like, yeah, she's she's annoying in a way, but not like, you know, not so annoying as all that, I guess. Virgil is nice. Of course, kind he of defend when the not, <laughs> Virgil is nice when he's not murdering people. Yeah, I like Virgil. He's probably my favorite <laughs> character. And he's sad about having to murder people, certainly. Yeah, he has some regrets. Where do we want to go here? I mean, we have <laughs> we haven't talked about how everyone has weird nicknames. <laughs> Yeah, so again, another conceit that's introduced at the beginning and then has like nothing to do with anything (laughs) is that Lottie gives everyone nicknames ranging in offensiveness. So we have, of course, alluded to her kind of inner circle of uh, fellow influencers whom she refers to as Norm Girl and Cute Girl. Uh, Carolyn, when she gets like inducted in as well becomes cool girl and then like in issue one she lists off a bunch of other nicknames as well including like the one that i can always remember is custodial dude (laughs) which i think i've got a sense of what his thing is um and and like i think there's like there's a robo girl as well that she does like a photo shoot with but other than that like it comes up very rarely. <laughs> yeah, it's like Sunny is just Sunny. Even Charlene, who like that's prime candidate for like some kind yeah. of girl, is just but, Charlene. But like the fact that she doesn't have a nickname, like kind of just goes to show the extent to which, in Lottie's mind, she like doesn't exist. But then it's like, why doesn't Ashley have a nickname? Like one of the weirdest guys. Yeah. Why isn't he Zordman? <laughs> Uh, was there a sh- Oh, no, I'm thinking of Zoids. <laughs> <laughs> Zoids is Power Rangers. Yes. Yes, Zoids of is, course. of course, a very cool TV show where there are some also robots. They, who, yeah, they have some Zoids-type machines. <laughs> I believe they also transform. I don't know, you know, it, it was hard not to have a transforming robot in your television series in those days. 
Sure. Metabots, did they transform? <sighs> they might have had like alternate forms. Metabots is so cool. Who can deny? Um, I've been trying to find and cannot find a scene where Lottie reflects on like changing in her capacity to change, which she does. Like, there's like an iota of growth <laughs> over the course of the series so far, in which she has become like slightly less absor- self absorbed. But I do like, I think it's interesting, like, talking about how it feels crazy that Brian Lee O'Malley would write this. At the same time, I think there's so many of his like kind of go to sort of like yes. moves in it as far as like the flawed but charming sort of <laughs> protagonists like I do I, I mean let's let's pa- actually pause on that for a moment because like how do we feel about these characters because as I said like they are truly despicable I believe you said it's a hangout <laughs> book about a bunch of people you would never want to hang out with and yet like there is like I don't know, maybe more so for me than for you, but I do just like enjoy reading it still. And I'm not sure whether that's like kind of a, a like you can't look away from this car wreck or, or what, but there is something like very, they all have like that same sort of weird, like Scott Pilgrim charisma where it's like, this person is so terrible and yet like so entertaining to like read about and like be with as a reader. Yeah, and something I was going to say earlier but didn't mention is like I did I did find this extremely readable. It's just like as I went on I was like is this like <laughs> is this like going to get to a point or oh, is it would just you like say volume 3 is this real life? I I think that the reason that uh, like Lottie in particular like I think her internal monologue is enjoyable and funny because it's like very real. Mm-hmm. Like it it doesn't and again it's like it's it doesn't ask you to like her which i think is like it's kind of ironic because it's like the whole thing is about like influencers right. who and like, like put she's on obsessed these, with being liked yeah and like people who put on these fake but then it's like her the way that she will present like you know like being annoyed at your friends or like just wanting someone to talk to you mm-hmm. or like having all these anxieties about like your health and like what's going on and like what Mm -hmm. you're gonna do for work and all this stuff like the fact it is like very relatable in that regard like i'd almost uh compare it to like something like broad city which i don't know if you've seen any of but like i have not has like (laughs) two very unlikable characters at the heart of it Mm -hmm. but then that is like what makes them sort of like charming is that they are so like real and like evil in a way that right. like you yourself well, uh, yeah. are evil like that's like the same as like like it's always sunny in philadelphia is like the whole joke is like these are like all they're, monsters they're more evil <laughs> they are more but but even like seinfeld like the whole premise of like yeah. the finale of seinfeld is like these four are on trial for like how bad they suck and yet like the whole appeal of seinfeld is like it would be so cool, like, if my friends were like that, basically, or, like, it would be so fun to, like, be part of, like, this friend group, even though they're just, like, constantly rude to each other and all the people around them. Yeah, and I mean, that's certainly an instinct that I have uh, more often than not, I would say. Like, I do see the fun in that, certainly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but then it's like, and it's like, sure, I will accept that, but then it's like, you know, like, Seinfeld doesn't ask me to care about, like, whether Jerry gets a girlfriend, you know? 
Like that's I'm true. not I'm not like, oh, is Jerry's relationship gonna work out? Like I want Jerry to be happy. It's like, no, I don't, I don't care if Jerry's happy respectfully. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think like that's maybe where it goes well, a little half off the, is that, like Yeah, half the joy of it is seeing them all be like miserable. <laughs> yeah. Like, and so it's like don't you can't do that and then expect me to be like I really want Lottie and Carolyn to work out because it's right. like, well, cause like you don't want Lottie and Carolyn to well, work sure. out because Carolyn is like a horrifying monster question mark. But like, I don't want Lottie and Sonny to work out or whatever. Like I don't, I don't care right. if like Lottie well, Sonny ultimately can be finds happiness. Sure. I mean, Sonny, <laughs> I want Sonny to find happiness. <laughs> Kid, do we, do we need to talk about like the queerness of this book and like the excessive amount of like, queer baiting it almost feels like at times like uh, sure i mean just go off first of all <laughs> <laughs> well just that like i mean for a long time i don't remember when they like first kiss or whatever mm-hmm. but uh but like for a long time cool girl is just like she's a cool person who like you're friends with and then it's also like i think you know lottie is clearly pretty clearly depicted to have a crush but also like there's mm-hmm. no it's not exactly textual right it's until she like, starts like having erotic dreams about her but even then it's like is like <laughs> is that like are we right. meant to directly actually take that like she is attracted to her and wants to be romantic with her or is it like you know like an erotic thriller might have where it's like I have, you know, like, where how in Black Swan, I haven't seen the movie, but, like, aren't there, like, lesbian elements to Black Swan? You famously. <laughs> you ever heard this story? No. I famously saw Black Swan with our mother and sister, um, and it does indeed have uh, several lesbian elements, including a, like, fairly erotic sex scene between uh, Natalie Porta- Portman and Mila Kunis, uh, two famously hot women <laughs> of the moment. Um, sure. And I have since been applauded for, uh, quote, remaining interested, but not too interested. <laughs> <laughs> One of my crowning achievements, to be sure. <laughs> I suppose so. But yeah, I mean, like, I feel like it's just a very much, like, a short... I mean, like, I haven't seen, like, Fatal Attraction either. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's, like, a sort of shorthand or a trope in some ways that, like, it'll be, like, depicting women as queer is sort of, like, shorthand for, like, an obsession or, like, an unhealthy interest. Like, right in someone and so like it seems to almost be going in that direction in some ways yeah and, and then, there, like, there it, also like was some of that in scott pilgrim too with like of course like knives and kim making out while drunk is like right. <laughs> a, a like classic moment and um you know the whole like roxy richter thing uh, being a thing as well i have i i would say mostly when i have seen reviews of it um, people are more inclined to praise it for like kind of including bi or pan characters without necessarily throwing a spotlight on it. Right. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that that's not like a valid critique of it because like just, just I guess just because of like the history of it and like, and this was more something I was encountering, like in the early stages of the book, before it sort of like, right before puts there was more like of a spotlight of on an it, actual interest in having a relationship. But even yeah. then, like you've got like 
Meg and Carolyn have like that that sort of like subplot element of volume two or three where it's like, oh, they hooked up, except did they or did they just like have a good cry together? Question mark. Um, where where anyways, yeah, just to say that like there there is lots of uh, like attention to the character's sexuality, but not necessarily in a way that is like. I guess like exploring it so much as being like this character yeah. who you thought was straight actually also is not. And I guess like maybe that in a, in a way like is normalizing it. Like, you know, even though we only know of Lottie, like dating a guy before this, it's like, I guess mm-hmm. there is nothing to explicitly say she is straight and it's not re- like, you know, the narrative doesn't really feel like it's like, Oh, like she's a straight girl who's like being turned gay right. or like, you know anything like that like but i and you know so maybe that's <laughs> another element of it to consider so it's it's a lot of things to juggle i think potentially like the bump up of it is that as far as we know she has only dated men and she does seem to want to kind of conceal her interest in or attraction to carolyn and yet then they like go on a date and there's no like i've never done this before or like this is like a new thing for me or or any kind of like grappling with it so it's like well is it i i don't know i guess that's that's just kind of a point of confusion where it's like is this something new for her or is this not new for her but if it's not new for her why does she seem to be like pretty like deep in the closet at least as far as like you know when her sister comes to visit not wanting to like be seen with caroline or not wanting her to think that she's anything more than a friend yeah and like sort of what you were getting back to like it's like oh well that doesn't necessarily mean that she is closeted like she could have had that reaction if like she was hanging with a guy as well but then it's like when there are those tropes and when we're sort of used to seeing that i feel like it starts to feel like a shorthand and you know maybe again like that's just my reading of it being too like heteronormative seems unlikely (laughs) but you know like there's that as well and you know of course there also seems to be some hinting at like a virgil sunny relationship well certainly virgil is attracted to sunny and we don't know really anything about (laughs) sunny's sexuality outside of women I think we see at the end of issue 15, which is, like, the issue where things happen, or maybe it's 14, like, it is funny how much the plot, like, enters the equation in, like, the last two issues, and then it's like, we're not making any issues for two years. (laughs) Is that the bachelor party issue? Yes, the bachelor party issue is issue 14, and the wedding is issue 15. Right. Which, again, features Ashley, like, having an unexpected sexual awakening with his best man. Right. Oh, in in issue 15 at the wedding, when he sees, he's, he sort of, like, overhears this conversation between Virgil and his older brother, and then, like, in his mind, it says, Virgil, why didn't you tell me you were in trouble? <laughs> so, like, there is, you know, there is some implied, like interest or protectiveness or you know some level of interest in virgil certainly yeah that's kind of like a weird line though considering that they've never like they're nemeses they're not even like really nemeses though except that it's like sunny is like there's something weird about that guy and virgil is just kind of like ominous and threatening right but yeah so it's just like it's just interesting to me especially since 
I don't think that Brian Lee O'Malley has like ever, and you know, maybe that's just a situation where it's like, it's not really anyone's business, but like, it is surprising that a, someone who is not identified as queer is writing a book that is so like explicitly and like overwhelmingly queer at times. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And like from comments I've seen and things like that, like does definitely seem to attract a queer audience and things like that. But then I guess that's like saga as well. Yeah. Which has definitely strong elements of that as well. So maybe, maybe as you said in our last episode, I believe pie in my face, which I don't (laughs) think is an expression. It's not. uh, But of course it's, (laughs) it's, uh, a long-standing malapropism of mine that is a like unintentional crossing of egg in my face and like eating humble pie <laughs> right so and the concept I, of getting pied yes yeah, so and the concept of getting pied in the face so i have for many years <laughs> uh, through like sheer force of habit whenever i'm proven wrong about something said pie in my face <laughs> which is just a funny visual <laughs> of pieing yourself in the face for being I wrong it's about funny. something i think um, it's good we did mention Lottie's uh, sister, whose name yes. starts with an R. Rosie Fumiko Person. They are, of course, half Japanese, in keeping with Brian Lee O'Malley's vow to include uh, more diverse casts, including mixed characters. We she meet these half Japanese girls. <sighs> Truly. We meet her and very shortly thereafter learn that she is uh, famous for being on Terrace House. <laughs> now, Terrace House. Have you I'm entered the flex. house? Are you a member? Have you climbed the terrace? I don't believe I have ever uh, gotten a key to the house. It seems like it would like really vibe with you. <laughs> I guess so, but isn't it like kind of like normcore where it, it's like it is? Yeah, I was introduced to it by uh, my friend and yours, John Thompson, in like twenty <laughs> wow, like early crazy. early days because he and his wife uh, or now wife, his ex girlfriend, um, <laughs> would be married. Would, yeah, would watch it like for hours because they were like it's just so chill <laughs> where it's i was i was perusing the wikipedia article and it seems like it has kind of lost this reputation subsequently but at the time it was its whole thing was like there's no manufactured drama it's kind of like anti-reality in terms of like just just being about like a bunch of roommates who like have pretty normal lives. I did uh, investigate and there was uh, a medical student on the first Netflix like funded seasons, but I don't think um, that that is intended to be like really the inspiration for the character. It might just be kind of like a funny coincidence, but my understanding is she was not originally intended to like play that much of a role at all until they were like, let's bring her in, which like, again, this is, one of the ways in which Snot Girl is so different from his other work, which is all graphic novel, is that being serialized, like, it doesn't matter how much they have, pl- like, he could have scripted the whole series if he, like, has a whim or or Leslie Hung has a whim and they're like, actually, I decided that I want, uh, like, Lottie's sister who has been mentioned but never depicted to become a major character. They could just, like, throw out all the scripts and be like, now she's here. Like, that, the level or the element of kind of, like, improvisation or spontaneity as compared to a graphic novel which kind of emerges whole cloth and like you can't change anything once it's kind of out there in the world is not something that he's really had the ability to do before i mean scott pilgrim is serialized compared to the other stuff that he's done but even that is coming out in in like 
you know, 250 plus page chunks as compared to a book that's coming out 22 pages at a time, you have a lot more kind of runway to change directions very quickly if you choose to do so. Right. And I I don't really feel the difference. Like I didn't particularly notice that I was reading like separate issues of a comic rather than like a more serialized story. I guess I don't really think of Scott Pilgrim in that way because Mm -hmm. it has like multiple parts. So I do kind of like think of them as issues, even though they are like obviously much bigger. But yeah, it's, I feel, I do admire that like, I don't feel like he really feels the urge to make each issue like a thing, if that makes sense. Like he's, it doesn't feel, you know, like we talk about Vaughn a lot with like the ways how he'll sort of like want to start with like something big and then like he loves to end on the cliffhanger and things like that and you know there's a little bit of like ending it on a cliffhanger or ending it on an image that like will make you want to sort of pursue things further but there's i think i feel, do feel like there's less like it's not like he's doing a monthly issue and so now like he doesn't feel like he can take his time no definitely not (laughs) um yeah i I did find it interesting to read him talking a little bit especially early on in the series to read him basically saying in interviews like i don't really know (laughs) how to write like a monthly story and i do think that he has kind of like played with some different Uh, kind of i guess like options there where like the second volume which is issues like six to ten where they go on like the retreat that really does have the the vibe of like a story arc where it's like it's it's the con arc or like it's the ghost story arc or like you know however you might want to characterize it there is kind of like a micro story within the like larger narrative that unfolds within the span of that volume there's also um like but that's act- true of Scott Pilgrim as well. Yeah, for sure. But but what I'm like kind of getting at is that he has like that option. He has sort of like the overall just sort of like vibe uh, that we have been talking about. We're just like issue to issue. Like he doesn't necessarily feel compelled to have a lot happen per se. And yet he's also done kind of like experimentally kind of one-off issues where like um, I think it's number eight, I want to say where it's just like Sonny's like mandate with Ashley where they go and play squash which uh, like in the covers is billed as like the boys issue and it's just like the two of them and Virgil and they're all like in towels in the sauna and like the the covers are all very funny because they they do like magazine cover style mock-ups for like the the graphics and things like that so having the boys issue and and knowing that like I think he went into that one being like I'm gonna do a boys issue (laughs) where it's like just the guys like I do think he's had some fun sort of playing with the different options that the single issue format offers in terms of being like if I want to do you know 160 pages that are kind of all focused on this one mini story within the larger narrative as far as like again the con arc i can do that if i want to say just like here's 22 pages of like sunny and ashley playing squash and that's the entire issue like i can also do that you know i i do think it's been a little bit experimental and stretching and Mm -hmm. you know maybe it hasn't always worked and that's that's where some of the uh chafing (laughs) may happen but i do think that's also kind of some of the appeal of it for me is being able to see him do stuff that he hasn't really ever had the opportunity to do in his other work yeah definitely um did you notice that when ashley hits the 
squash ball that it smashes like earthbound no it it, it has the same like smash oh yes yes uh, as when you get a critical head and earthbound which like that's you know classic sure. brian <laughs> i yeah, wanted I mean, it to say skadoosh personal <laughs> <laughs> you wish you love kung fu panda uh anyways that's an old play an old back when Facebook likes were a thing. <laughs> I under my interests in movies, there was I found a page called Confu Panda. <laughs> <laughs> I listed under my likes, which is al- almost funnier now than it was then. <laughs> it was pretty funny then in my mind. But yeah, I, I think like another thing that we haven't really you know given much credence to is. Even though a lot of his work has had like heightened elements, like fantasy elements or things like that, like this is probably the first time he's playing with like heightened dramatic elements, right? Like where like yeah. the relationships and like the feelings are like over the top in the right. same way that like the actions might be over the right. top. Like Scott Pilgrim is kind of all about the externalization of the feelings and emotions into these like crazy, you know, set pieces and and you know, superheroic and manga inspired, you know, visuals, all that kind of thing. This really is like, I think the fact that contemporary romance is listed as the first genre on like all of the trades, like it really is in some ways a play on those like 50s and 60s, like Silver Age romances where like, I'm surprised almost that we haven't seen like a direct homage of that like crying girl panel yeah um, that is like so you know superfluous or not you know prevalent in the pop art kind of have you seen the cover of issue seven because it kind of is that like i didn't realize until you mentioned that how much like lottie's face in particular like well like looks i think like the the like eyes always welling up with tears because of her allergies i think is kind of like the joke that is constantly but but you're right that like and having the raised the hand raised to the face like has a phone in it is also kind of like the the joke there yeah like the posing a lot of times will be like it's funny because it sort of alternates between like that like very retro influence and then like a more modern like manga or webtoon like uh, i feel like the guys especially like will often like be in these very like exaggerated yeah, like, like beefcakey yeah <laughs> not beef, beef but you know like by shonen almost um but yeah i i think that there is a reason that they continually list romance as kind of like the primary genre because i do think that it very much is like hearkening back to the extremely dramatic internal monologues that you'll see in those comics and especially like that is like the fodder of the covers of the comics of that kind of era where you know it's like the the like you know the guy's like trying to kiss his girlfriend yeah but she's like turned away and has the thought bubble that's like i I want want to love johnny with all my heart but he can never know my terrible secret right that is like so much like the vibe of (laughs) of this book in a lot of ways and it is also like to go back again to talking about some of the ways in which this is like replete with sort of like the overall you know the it it makes sense that like this is the book that comes out at this point in his career in some ways this is kind of like an anti lost at sea in a way where like the big feelings and big emotions are also kind of like what is the driving thing behind that book 
but it's that book is like so slice of life and so down to earth and so like you know these are the the sort of like real relatable feelings of a teenage girl this book is all about like the insanely outsized feelings of Lottie and you know these these huge emotions that she assigns to these kind of like everyday experiences in some ways yeah and maybe that is to some degree like what he's playing with and sort of like the reaction that that is because like you know even seconds lost sea scott pilgrim those are all sort of like i wouldn't say they really strive for like those big emotional moments but they do sort of like they have something to say about like the world or about like the nature of like the self or the nature of love or things like that like mm-hmm. they're very like heartfelt in those ways and so maybe it, it this is like oh i have a, here's a comparison for you this is his u2 pop or zuropa <laughs> <laughs> you hated that. I, was really I don't like it. That's for sure. Where it's like I am like the earnest guy because I went to camp and then went to jail, etc. I was <laughs> getting there. <laughs> uh, and so, like, here is my like take on like super super duper irony, and maybe that's part of why it chafes me a little bit. And like, you know, that's nothing to do with him. Like, that's just I think a lot of times that kind of work can be resisted at first by people who are fans of the creator's other work. Like, you know, people hated that those you might less so Zuropa, but people didn't like that air of U2 because it was so steeped in irony. But then like, you know, retrospectively people have sort of appreciated those elements. So maybe this is something I'll come back and appreciate later. Yeah, I, I don't know if, like, though, that I would say that he was, like, devoid of irony previously. Like, certainly no. Scott Pilgrim, like... But his depiction know. of relationships, I think, was usually pretty devoid of irony. Like, yeah. I think when he was talking about people's feelings, he usually would be pretty heartfelt. And like, Well, yeah, they would. They, those books all have the times when it, like, kind of grounds itself back in the emotions of the characters as kind of like the beating heart of the stories where even though like for example they have the conversation in the midst of a fight with a half ninja evil ex who they're trying to blow up and turn into a pile of money they have that exchange where you know ramona is like or or scott scott is gets called a pussy by rossi roxy richter and is like is it true ramona am i just a pussy and she's like well you could be less of one um which is like a very like yeah, in, in the midst of that extremely, like, heightened confrontation is, like, a very realistic exchange that two two people might have with each other about, like, you know, kind of realizing what it is about you that is, like, causing problems in the relationship and the, how the other person, like, you know, confronts you with it in that way. And then he goes on, of course, to give a very heartfelt speech about, you know, the power of love, basically. Whereas in this... You could like you. You can't imagine that happening in this with any no. character, kind of other than Sunny, who is like too good of a guy to ever be the one who is like coming to a realization about himself because everyone around him are the ones who like need to have moments of powerful clarity about themselves. Yeah, I mean, like even like with like I think like almost the joke of Sunny is that like he is the good guy and then like kind of like gets not not like thrown by the wayside but like he doesn't really get anything out of it like he's sort of like on the outskirts of the friend group and then it's like he like waits for charlene while she's in a coma <laughs> and then she's like i'm gay 
like the bit of it is almost that like he's too nice for these people do we want to talk about sort of where (laughs) the book seems to be going because like you know as we mentioned it is on hiatus now and it has been since when you said 2020 is when the last issue came oh, out. Oh, right. We March 2020, last yeah. Episode. It's like, March 10th, 2020, here's the new issue. <laughs> yes, it is on hiatus. There have been references to a return in 2022, and certainly, like, Leslie Hung on, like, her social media stuff has been sharing lots of, like, kind of sketches and, you know, keeping keeping the, the Snot Girl fan discourse uh, alive <laughs> as far as that goes. So, yeah, it will return. As far as where it's going, I saw a reference somewhere that uh, O'Malley had apparently said that he envisioned it as, like, a 30 to 40 issue series. So, much like Saga, right, when it went on hiatus, we're roughly around the halfway point, maybe even less than here. And like Saga, I wouldn't say that this is exactly like a tight, focused, plot-driven story. So right. I would not necessarily expect like things to look so differently in 10 issues from what they look like right now. Like it does have the kind of vibe of where it will, like the last arc will wrap up kind of the the questions and kind of in the meantime he will continue to just sort of have fun with the characters and like the the world. Yeah, I I don't really know <laughs> where it's going. Um I do think that like there is a there is a reveal of some kind about her medication like forthcoming that is separate from kind sure, of the yeah. the broader Caroline stuff. But other than that, yeah, I don't I don't know what exactly he has in mind <laughs> with Caroline. I have posited vampire who knows. But I, yeah, I think that most of what lies ahead is kind of just more, more having fun with the characters, more kind of like romantic dramedy with like a heavy dose of this same sort of sardonic irony uh, throughout, and then relatively like quick conclusion is my my sort of guess. Yeah, definitely. I sorry, I was literally just reading through the bachelor party issue and started laughing at it. <laughs> it's very funny. I would I would potentially say it's his funniest book. I laughed out loud like quite hard several times when I was reading through the uh, the issues for it. It is funny, and you know there there is like I said, I don't really like the satire of the digital age thing, partly because like it feels like culture like consumes itself so quickly mm-hmm. nowadays that it's like that we don't really need to satirize anything because it's like already being satirized like in the posting of it almost and and but i will say at the same time again maybe for some people potentially a negative and a consequence of the lack of focus i don't feel like he tries to do a lot of no like social not... media commentary yeah i would be more annoyed with this book if it was more about how like she doesn't have enough followers or whatever. Like that stuff never really seems to factor into it, which I appreciated. Like <laughs> I don't really want to start where it's like, I'm losing all my followers because I the thing I got canceled. Like mm-hmm. I don't I really do not have an interest in that. And so I'm glad he steers away from that. But yeah, like what I was gonna say is like if someone were to do that, like I feel like he is one of the people who is funny is self-aware and is also like baked into that universe enough that like he has a good understanding and like has a bit of a take on it compared to like some random director making a movie about it right and he also benefits from like a kind of 
awareness of like you know he's he's like a nerd at his heart and has been on the internet for a long time and like you know leslie hung is probably closer to our age possibly even younger than me um and and has also like grown up with the internet and i like just i I think they're self-aware in a way that like i've seen them allude to in interviews like when they're talking about the sort of social media side of things and just sort of like acknowledging how fast the internet moves compared to a book that at its fastest was coming out (laughs) once a month and being like it's kind of a time capsule basically is it what i've i've read them say and being like it's still like set in 2016 at this point like it came we're in 2022 now it came out though in 2016 and it's not like they're like flying through the years or like trying to do it in real time as compared to like 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 invincible for example is a comic that kind of made its name by going in real time so you start out with him as like a 16 year old and by the end of the the book he's like married with kids but that looks very different in a superhero book that started in like the early 2000s as opposed to books coming out today where it's like once a month like we already like i complained in saga that like he made a fidget spinner joke where i was like he was already kind of like past the best before date when that issue came out and so to read it again in 2021 or 2022 whenever we were doing saga i was like oh a fidget spinner joke (laughs) like heaven preserve us um and so i i think they're just too self-aware to get caught like having a like dogecoin joke or something where it's like no like we are like we are a time capsule but we're not gonna date ourselves like that if if that makes sense to like make a joke that if you hit it in like a five second window it's hilarious but then anytime you come back to it after that people are just like oh yeah like I said, I think it does have like a better handle on that those things, even if you know it's not my favorite type of thing. Do we want to talk about Reggie the dog, aka Roscoe? Yeah, he's very cute, uh, very on brand for cute girl. <laughs> it is also, funny that. Yes, go ahead. Well, just did, did you see that one? There's like this one page, and I don't know if like this had been a thing that had been like seeded throughout. But there's one page where, in the bachelor party issue, where it's like a wide shot of the four of them of like, uh, what's her name again? Uh, Lottie's sister. Uh, Rosie, aka Fumi-chan. Yes, uh, of Rosie, Lottie, and then Norm girl and cute girl, and cute girl like comes up to Lottie's waist. <laughs> oh yeah, she is like hilariously small. The backs of the trades. I don't know if you had this in the in the issues, but the backs of the trades have like all these notes about like from from Leslie Hung that are just kind of like design notes, and especially like she talks a lot about the clothes that she chooses to put people in, um, which are interesting to read. But it's funny because a lot of times when she's talking about cute girl style. She'll talk about how basically, like, in addition to being cute, everything that she wears is, like, trying to make her bigger because she's so small that she just wants to, like, occupy more space. Right. How she wears, like, really wide dresses. And, like, yeah, she's, like, like, like extremely, like, puffy in everything that she does, <laughs> in part funny. because it's cute, but also in part because she's, like, I just think she wants to occupy as much physical space as she can. <laughs> right. That's funny. What else? Is there anything else that needs talking about? 
Yeah, I, I think just like a few other notes that amused me from those kind of like design uh, discussion things would be talking about Norm Girl as like a Pinterest user and like <laughs> describing her style as mod cloth, which I thought was extremely <laughs> funny, slash like a website that I forgot existed. <laughs> right. Um, I think, uh, oh, she talks as well about how Caroline's style is that she just wears things that if like a person who wasn't insanely hot wore them, they wouldn't look good. And even yes. specifically is like, if Meg or Misty wore this, they would just like look drab. Um, but like Caroline gets away with it because she's just like so insanely hot that it doesn't matter what she wears. And that like the low effort kind of like feel of that is for her like kind of an important part of the character, which I think is an interesting sort of take on her just like how how sort of pernicious she is that they've built it into her that like everything about her is like yeah like low effort or like doing the easy thing that's kind of i think like the bit of her is that like she's so cool because she doesn't try right and and yet is capable like this is her other note is like every so often she'll just like bust out something completely insane that is like oh right she's like capable of you know things beyond what you might guess just from kind of her like day-to-day stuff um but anyways yeah i thought uh, i thought that was interesting what do we sort of think about carolyn as a character she sort of exists in this weird space where like like you said she is sort of like thoughtless in some ways and like can be like a pretty cruel person it's like do do you feel like there's enough there to feel like she is likable or like that like she would be desirable other than her being like really hot well i think every character in the book um gets like the the like hot subsidy (laughs) insofar as like they are all Sure. Just, just like gain a, a slight benefit from being insanely hot. I do think that they do like a pretty good job of showing what, yeah, what is can like is or can be charming about her, or or like positioning her as someone who like when her attention is on you, it makes you feel like the most special person in the world. But she's also like aware of like that power and will like remove her attention as a means of like manipulation and control in a way that obviously just leads to a bunch of very unhealthy and toxic relationships. I do think like, I mean, I think that in terms of like dramatic irony, it's very easy for us as the audience to kind of like see that, especially when he will specifically draw attention to it with like, there's a, there's only a couple of scenes where we see Carolyn with like out one of the at least semi-normal characters like when we see her just with Virgil or something like that but when we do it's like very clear for us that like you know she knows what she's doing and she knows she's aware of the effect that she has on women to uh to paraphrase Charles Minor yes (laughs) I did have that thought as well like I do I do think that it's made very clear to us as the audience that she's not like a good person in any way. But I do think that they also do a good job of showing, you know, how easy it would be to kind of like fall under her spell if you weren't kind of like aware of how manipulative she was deliberately being and just thought that she was like this insanely cool, insanely attractive person who made you feel like the greatest person in the world when she paid attention to you and just made you like desperate to make sure that you were the person that she was paying attention to. Right. Yeah, I know what you mean. Because especially because like um 
I feel like she, it's so she's someone where it's like in a group setting she is like because there's that whole thing with well, the yeah, brunch they like where all it's like they hate her, her. <laughs> yeah. yeah and then it's like they all like have individual time with her and then like grow to love her yeah although misty seems to be like the one person who is kind of immune because they room together at like the influencer convention and she <laughs> she is like i hate her and i'm just spying on her for you lottie uh speaking of things that made me laugh out loud so hard the picture of her toothbrush <laughs> is <laughs> such a good bit <laughs> yeah where she's like what are you gonna show I've me? I've got something you're really gonna want to see. Yeah, and she like moves off of something actually interesting and relevant to be like, look, her toothbrush. <laughs> so crazy. Um, another thing that made me laugh out loud is the scene where Virgil is Charlene's physical therapist. Oh yeah, and he's that, like in uh, scrubs and a mustache. Yes, all every time Virgil is in costume is extremely funny because like he's sort of wearing a uniform, but he's also wearing like the the shortest hot pants you've ever seen <laughs> right. like like again from like the designer notes like leslie hung talks about how like if you're looking for the person with the most expensive wardrobe it's virgil and he like doubles up the next closest person because she's the character for whom she like scours all of the like ultra high-end like streetwear type right. designers he- and puts him in stuff where it's like as soon as it would become like too cool he just like throws it out and so it's like yeah he's wearing like a ups shirt but he's wearing it over like a like three thousand dollar like mesh tank top (laughs) right he's right it's like it's the classic like thing people make fun of fashion about where it's like he's wearing like a balenciaga white collared shirt that like looks normal but is like five thousand (laughs) dollars that's funny okay well do you have anything in terms of sales awards any kind of that i stuff. do i do i don't think that this has gotten any awards uh noms yet i think in part that is just because in any one given year right. it just like doesn't come out enough to kind of garner that sort of attention i it might if it came out a little bit more consistently in terms of sales uh number one debuts to thirty-four thousand roughly uh units which is a perfectly respectable debut maybe not as high of a number as you might expect to see from a name like Brian Lee O'Malley, but, you know, a, a perfectly, again, respectable debut. Right. Just like to contrast, was Saga coming out this month or was this a hiatus month? This was a hiatus month. Um, so Saga would have been, I guess, between volumes uh, when this came out. But I think like that's relatively comparable to what you expect to see from Saga on kind of a regular basis. And this is all in July 2016 when issue one comes out. By the time we get to the end of the first arc with issue five, that number has dropped by about half to roughly 17,000, which again, that's like a pretty standard drop off. Like you, you expect to see by the time a series is kind of in full swing that you will lose like about half the readership. Um, that puts it, you know, in the same realm as, for example, Monstrous, which is another image series around the same time that's pretty popular and, you know, garnering awards talk. Slightly above Spawn, <laughs> which is still going strong. And in the realm of, uh, like, popular but kind of cult mainstream titles like Carnage, Silver Surfer is down here, um, Spider-Man 2099 kind of gets <laughs> gives you a sense of, sure. you know, where where the, the playing ground that it's on uh, for 
for those things. And issue five, of course, I believe is December 2016. Yes. And of course, it's slotting in right behind the Power Man and Iron Fist Sweet Christmas Special, <laughs> which I love. Um, by was the this... time... Sorry, go ahead. I don't mean to interrupt your long monologue about Please. the sales. But like, was this... How was this received? Because I was sort of thinking about like, I assumed that there were people that like read the first, you know, five issues or whatever of this mm-hmm. and was like... I hate this. How could Brian Lee O'Malley do this to me? Uh, like, you know, people coming from Scott Pilgrim. and But then, like, it also does seem to have found its audience with, like, <laughs> I mean, again, not to generalize, but, like, Twitter <laughs> the queers. <Tumblr> crowd. <laughs> yeah, the Tumblr crowd. Uh, and so, like, yeah, I think it is a weird audience-wise. It's a weird thing. I think thing. that's a fair assessment. It is, as I will discuss shortly, uh, like a classic the trades are sustaining this book without a doubt (laughs) and and is more of like kind of like a a bookstore staple as opposed to you know something that is is pulling these like huge numbers month after month because it's not coming out month after month i think when it first came out i mean it's it's sort of in the same realm of seconds where it's like it gets a fair bit of attention because it's like hey the scott pilgrim guy has a new book coming out and so you know people are interested in it for that alone and then kind of as soon as it becomes clear that it's not scott pilgrim there's like a fairly significant drop off of people who are just like, this isn't Scott Pilgrim. Not because they're like, I hate this, but just they're not like that interested in something from Brian Lee O'Malley that is not Scott Pilgrim. Right. It continues to be like, I think fairly well received critically, uh, especially like in terms of like the, the comic books, like sort of journalist scene. I mean, you're, you're never going to find like an interview with one of the creators. That's like, I think this book totally blows, but we thought it would be interesting (laughs) to have a conversation with the creators anyways. Like nobody, you know, you, 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 I'm sure you can find plenty of reviews from like, you know, the man on the street that are like, it wasn't the book for me, but yeah, by and large, critically, like people think it's, it's a perfectly fine uh, and interesting comic, but again, like awards wise, not much doing. Number 15, which again, impacted by the fact that it did go on sale March 11th, 2020, but sold under 10,000 units, which would be like well below the red zone for a Marvel or DC book, puts it in sort of similar territory to, uh, uh, let's see, Rick and Morty number 60. I'm (laughs) seeing here, of course, is clocking in around the same amount. Uh, It's just above Go Go Power Rangers number 30. It's, it's, yeah, it's pretty far down the list. 216th in units moved for, uh, for March. Um, so it definitely, like, I do think the erratic release schedule has pretty much killed, like, kind of monthly interest in it as far as, like, kind of the Wednesday Warriors goes. That being said, when you look at the trades, they have always debuted, um, as the fourth best selling trade of the month and have, like, a fair bit of staying power. I was looking at the January 2022 sales numbers and all three volumes of Snot Girl are still clocking in the top 200 and and kind of in the same range of like, you know, some of the earlier saga volumes and which like Scott Pilgrim does not, which is maybe not super shocking because those are diamond sales numbers, which means that they're mostly focused on distribution to comic shops, not, not bookstores, bookstores, which again, like if Scott Pilgrim is moving big units, it's going to be through like Barnes and Noble or through Amazon more so than it is through kind of your your local comic store. But 
you know, it's got it's got some staying power um, as a trade as well. So volume one comes out number four behind um, another very popular image series, Seven to Eternity, the Love is Love special from IDW and Detective Comics volume one from like DC Rebirth. So like, you know, it's it's only 400 units behind Batman, which is like pretty, pretty good. Volume two comes out uh, <laughs> behind something that I have never heard of. Star Wars Tag and Bink. We were here. Number one. Can oh, I, I open think that I know about Tag. I think Tag and Bink are like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Oh, yes, it does appear to be something like that. I'm not sure why this was such a big hit this month. Um, TBH. Uh, and then we have Infinity Gauntlet, which let me think. Spring 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Could have driven interest in <laughs> Infinity Gauntlet. <laughs> this is, of course, the month after Infinity War comes out. So, uh, And then where we live, Las Vegas shooting benefit anthology is also clocking in. Just Great, ahead. yeah. Thank you. For... That, is, that is that is somewhat crazy, but yeah, Snot Girl Volume Four clocking in there. I couldn't find the hard numbers for when Volume Three came out because, um, like May twenty twenty, the distribution was like in shambles and sure. like numbers just weren't getting reported. But I did find like a kind of overall top ten list that indicated that it was the number four best selling graphic novel of twenty twenty two. So, you know, again, number four and doing just fine. So yeah, it's it is kind of in that like I would say Paper Girls is probably the closest comparison of something we've done where like the monthly interest is fine slash like again or number 15 just based on like how erratic the schedule has been it's not shocking to see the numbers are quite low but the trades are like pretty consistent performers so it has found its audience it makes total sense to me just based on the genre based on the o'malley of it all based on the audience that seems to be most interested in it is like the prototypical trade paperback market so it's it's no surprise to me that that seems to be where it uh, it makes its money. Right. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, oh, hold on. One other thing I wanted to mention. Did you look at any of the uh, O'Malley variant covers for any of the issues? No. Let me see if I can find them. I was very interested by them, especially the ones for the first five, because he seemed to be working in a very different style from what you might expect of him i do see one which appears to be set in the this is fine dog cafe (laughs) oh yes i do i do see that so see this would be one that i would point to you're referring of course to the uh, number 15 cover b variant he has moved kind of like back towards his signature style it seems like to me more recently but if you compare that with for example uh the number two variant which i'm about to send you um if you compare that with the cover here like the only thing that i look at that and i'm like oh i see o'malley is the hands which are like a famously like you know the the artist's downfall is having uh like doing doing good hands basically the rest of the style of it, like I would never look at that in a vacuum and and be like, yeah, I would never look at that and be like Brian Lee O'Malley. Like knowing that it is Brian Lee O'Malley, 
I can see kind of. I think it's just like, like I, the design. I can see it in terms of like the lines and and like some of how like the the flatness of the tone of the skin and, and sort of the general figure. But the face, the hair, the background are all things that like I would never have guessed like Brian Lee O'Malley. So it's interesting to me that he was working in kind of like a very different mold, but then by the time we get back to like even number like number four which has her as like a pilot is is kind of back to classic brian leo malley and then like number 13 which i, mean, I will send could, you shortly looking at number two i'm like maybe he just didn't have time to like <laughs> create a cover this detailed for every issue because like there is a lot of line work in it and things like that like her hair is very right very detailedly rendered or whatever and of course he's doing those with like um bobby fisher is uh, wait bobby fisher that's an espn guy right jason is of fisher. course a chess player <laughs> of course um jason fisher who was his assistant on seconds is also doing art assists on those covers and they're being colored by nathan fairburn here is the cover to the the variant cover or a clip of the variant cover to number 14 which is like ultimate like classic o'malley yeah. but it's also a cute girl so it's more in keeping it is also with cute girl yeah the style it's, it's just interesting to see him play in different styles on the variant covers for this book which he's not doing like the interior art for and maybe has a little bit more capacity to play around with and watching him kind of fluctuate between levels of like O'Malley-ness basically right let us conclude here let us discuss our rankings because we are finished with Brian Lee O'Malley uh, a speedy very enjoyable jaunt uh I will say, again, with all due respect, it did go by quicker than uh, <laughs> the Marsha Centropy miniseries to some extent. Again, not anything to do with the quality of the books, but he is a, a very easy read, I would say. He is an easy read, certainly. Um, so do we want to split our rankings into the episodes in the same way? So with Scott Pilgrim not being one entity? Um... Sure, I'm open to that. We've been a little inconsistent with this. <laughs> Depending, uh, like, Zot, we broke down as well like that, but other long-read, like, Saga, we didn't break down. Right. I mean, I think if you make Scott Pilgrim one thing, then I feel like that's yeah, going to be number it one pretty clear. Whereas yeah. I think I have a little more of an interesting delineation if it's broken up into the episodes we did. Yeah. Okay, let's let's break it up. I'm for it. Okay. I'm going to say I have a vague sense of my ranking here. Boy, this is this is tough. Uh I got to say like just thinking about it like I like it all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, again, like there's not really much bad here. Like Snot Girl's not my favorite, but like I did appreciate how crazy it was in some ways. Like I think it I like I might have bounced off of it a little bit just because, like, I didn't know what was going on and I didn't know what I was looking at. Uh, and so, like, it confused me in some ways. But, you know, I didn't... I don't think I disliked it. <laughs> if you were, like... If you told me I had to reread it, I'd be like, oh, that's fine. And so I think... I think I have my ranking. I think I do as well. I'm going to go from bottom to top. So I have, okay. what, seven, seven things here, including the yep. movie. Oh, wait, wait. Are we including the movie? I think so. 
I mean, like, it doesn't really I, mean anything. I think I'm going to like, omit the, the sure, movie omit because the movie. it just it just confuses things. Brian Leo Mitty. <laughs> nice. Secret, Secret Life. life. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sure sign that this episode needs to end soon. Uh, in sixth place, I have Snot Girl. In fifth place, I have the last two volumes of Scott Pilgrim. In fourth place, I have Seconds. Well, maybe I'll flip those. In, so in fifth place, I have Seconds. In fourth place, I have the last set of Scott Pilgrim volumes. In fourth i'm getting all mixed up now in third place i have the first set of scott pilgrim volumes in second place i have lost at sea and in first place i have the middle two scott pilgrim volumes <laughs> which is very confusing but yes we're gonna we're gonna be very different i will again yeah preface this by saying like I don't think I have a clear-cut number one that stands so far above everything no, else that it's like, well, obviously this. And I also, like, the things I will be ranking last are, like, books I enjoyed a lot. Right. <laughs> um, like, he's got he's got a pretty tight grouping is what I'll say. Right. I am going to go sixth, the first two volumes of Scott Pilgrim. Wow. Second, or I mean, uh, fifth. <laughs> fifth, uh, I think I will go seconds third i mean fourth <laughs> it's you a problem a when one mess. of them is also called seconds okay yes. i'm starting from the top sixth the first two volumes of scott pilgrim fifth seconds fourth the last two volumes of scott pilgrim third snot girl second I think I'm going second the middle two volumes of Scott Pilgrim and first Lost at Sea. I'm I'm frankly stunned to find myself ranking Lost at Sea number one. I, I, th- I would never have predicted that coming into this miniseries, having already read all of these. I would not have either. I mean, like, even just sort of knowing the vague sense of what I knew about the other stuff, but, like, the, the rap that Lost at Sea gets a lot of times is like, oh, like, it's his first work, it's a little unvarnished, like, but I think, like... There's something charming about that. Yeah, and, like, it, I agree that it's artistically unvarnished, but I think in terms of, like, it's plotting and, like, emotional and thematic, like, cohesion, yeah. I think it's, like, just as strong as anything else he's done. I agree, yeah. I think it, like, the... Th- having the opportunity to basically discuss it at length and unpack some of the themes Mm -hmm. and like think about it a bit more closely than I did after just kind of reading it for my own interest and enjoyment. Um, I mean, I think I said like even on the episode that I was like talking myself into it more and more as we like discussed it. And um, so between like having that opportunity to reread it, like think about it a lot more, talk about it and then re-listen to that whole episode while I was editing, it really has just kind of like risen in the ranks every time I have had more occasion to kind of think on it longer. And a couple of things, well, one thing is it is such a common like type of narrative in a way like more so than his other books Mm -hmm. and like so it's almost like having something to compare it to makes it more impressive in a way Um, and to that point like i think what does really impress me about that book is it i think when you're writing like young what it's essentially young adult fiction Mm -hmm. and i think with in that field either you're you lack the voice of like a and the feelings of a young person or you lack like the emotional prescience 
of like a more mature person and so i feel like what really impresses me is that it does feel like he gets both like he understands like the feelings of a young person while also having the like distance and emotional maturity to be able to like write something about it that doesn't suck right (laughs) which i think is like very very rare in that especially in that sort of field of like a young adult coming of age kind of book yes i agree and i think that like we have talked throughout all these episodes about his female protagonists and female characters generally which i would say he's not someone who is often kind of pointed to as like uh you know like i think there are writers who make their names as like oh the strong feel female protagonist guy wasn't that like which is always interesting was at the time yeah and like greg rucka who like i think i do think that greg rucka writes good female characters but but he is kind of like trades on the name of being like the good female character guy and i don't think that o'malley really gets credit for it but i think that he does write really good female characters and he writes a diverse like cast of female characters if that makes sense like all of his female characters are quite distinct and and individual and realized in different ways whereas like again i i love greg rucka i would potentially even call him my like favorite working creator right now but a lot of his female characters have a samey kind of feel to them whereas like you would never mistake katie for lottie for um raleigh for kim for ramona you know what i like yeah. all of his characters are very much realized and individual and i think the fact that like you're coming into lost at sea where it's like his debut writing you know kind of performance and to have a teen girl who is like such a like strong character not in the sense of like what a like she's a tough badass but she's also a woman i mean like a strong character in terms of being like a fully realized mm-hmm. and like fleshed out character like i think that that is hard to do as a young creator let alone like a young man who has no experience as a professional writer I see that you're making a a real face here. <laughs> yeah, I mean I like like you said, like I think that the fact that his characters are not like, you know, I think that there is a certain stereotype around men writing female characters that they tend to be like I'm the tough badass who like is this and this, but then I also but I'm have also sexy. And I'm sexy. <laughs> um and so I think like his ability to like write characters that don't feel like stock and that don't right. feel like they fall under archetypes i think is like the most impressive part of yeah. what he, and, he does and like i do think that there's an element of that where it's like so often i feel like that when when a male creator or a male writer is trying to write a like strong female protagonist quote unquote there is like the weird element and i feel like not to hit like all the joss whedon stuff of it i feel like i have literally read him say of buffy like i wanted her to like i wanted to admire her and also like want to have sex with her and i feel like that is so much in all of these characters and like all of all of those like kinds of characters right but i don't think it's really in any of o'malley's characters which is impressive yeah, in its that, way i guess that's a that's a great way to put it is just like the creator having an attraction to the 
like thing that they created is like right. like like they're kind of externalizing their fetish even even in snot girl where again like half the premise is like all of these people are insanely attractive and horny yeah. i never get the sense that like brian right. o'malley is reading it and being like oh yeah no if anything i feel like leslie hong is hornier <laughs> for like the all the characters than brian Lee o'malley is um and i mean that positively uh, let's talk about our next miniseries because Dude, we have let's. concluded with Brian the O'Malley, and this should be a fun one. We're getting, uh, we're sticking with the CanCon, which I did not realize. I'm about, impressed you uh, know that. <laughs> I was just looking at this person's Wikipedia page and uh, <laughs> got some helpful info in there. Uh, mm-hmm. The we're also getting dipping our toe a little bit back into the uh, or for the first time really into other than ultimate x-men and to some extent runaways and swamp and swamp thing sort of this is like the most mainstream superhero comic that we're, we've really delved into thus far and i am excited about that as well we will be covering the late great darwin cook for our next mini series we will indeed focusing on uh, his written work because right. he, there is a, there is a fair bit that we've omitted here where he was the artist um, and not the writer. So I think we have only included things that he both wrote and drew with maybe the exception of the before Watchmen stuff he might have only written. His but other than that, as we yes, like to his, say. other than that, we are primarily again. We've talked many times about how we are art dunces, and uh, and it's generally easier for us to focus on writers. We have incorporated many writer artists, and Cook is among them. But we will be focusing on um, the work that he wrote, most of which he also drew. But uh, that's neither here nor there. He as also far drew. As our, general purposes um and we will be kicking it off with uh, i have highlighted specifically batman ego and catwoman selena's big score but what it boils down to is ultimately the contents of the uh, batman ego hardcover which i will post the full details on there are some additional short stories in there of his but the two primary focuses will be batman ego and catwoman selena's big score so our first foray into uh the b-man himself our first foray into the mainstream no holds barred dc universe i believe hey gow <laughs> <laughs> was good um, <laughs> i'm a little sad for you that you liked it though uh, that's that's normally my brand so uh i fun to be on the other side of it anyways that is what we will be kicking things off with uh darwin cook great creator have you read anything any of his stuff before i new have frontier, definitely anything? read the new frontier this was again like you know almost 10 years ago now if not Mm -hmm. 10 years ago so i forgot how old i was for a second i was like (laughs) 10 years ago i was 12 (laughs) uh to Um, be old yeah i'm i'm looking forward to getting into him he is uh of course a renowned and celebrated artist um 
gone too soon tragically but his his he's he's a real creator's creator where i don't think that if you said his name to someone who doesn't read comics they would necessarily register him or know of him or have heard of him but even like many many years after his death now creators still go out of their way to talk about um their respect for his work or um the influence that they had on them or that he had on them as a mentor or as an artistic influence or what have you um so looking forward to talking about his career, which is also a very unique career, his his sort of pathway into comics and all that. I will enjoy discussing uh, all of that stuff. So look forward to that. Kicking off next week, we are foregoing an annual uh, once again, but uh, after <laughs> we'll, we'll get some we'll get some annuals back in uh, between the next couple of miniseries. But uh, given how short all of uh, Satrapy, O'Malley, and now Cook is only going to be a few episodes as well, we are just going to be flowing smoothly right into it. And speaking of flowing smoothly right into it, thank you all for listening. <laughs> Please remember to rate and review and subscribe to us on all the relevant platforms. You can follow us at Got the Runs Pod on Twitter. You can email us at gottherunspod at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow me at C Housingen on Twitter. Uh, the I believe at the time that this is released, the Bevy of Bevies season finale will have uh, dropped. So go listen to that. Listen to High Floor, Low Ceiling if you're a sports fan. But until next time, to, to be, be continued. continued. You look like you forgot that, that was what we did for a second. I thought you were gonna say something else for some reason before we started. I like I you sounded like you were winding up for you, like on behalf of all of us who are gonna run. And I was like, 